One of the dangers that you and I both face as individuals and even as a church is the ordinary. That's right, the ordinary. By the ordinary, what I mean is the everyday experience of life. We go to work, we come home, we eat dinner, we go to bed. And life feels, well, it feels quite ordinary, doesn't it? Church can feel this way too. We come to church, we sing songs, we hear a message, we go home, and routine sets in. There's nothing wrong with the ordinary, in fact. God has called us to be faithful in the midst of the very ordinary responsibilities he has given to us. However, what is dangerous about the ordinary is that in the midst of it, we might begin to think that since life is quite natural, the supernatural doesn't exist. Have you been here? Can you relate to what I am talking about? After all, we don't see it happen. We don't experience it. And so why should we believe in it? Though we know all the right Christian songs to sing, though we know all the right Christian slogans to repeat, we don't really, really believe in the God that we say we believe in. Oh, sure, we know the, the stories about how he split the Red Sea, brought plagues down on Egypt, and even resurrected his son. But we don't really believe in our hearts that this same supernatural God is alive and at work today in the church and in history. So what do we do? We go about our, our lives just going through the motions, but not really believing that the God that we sing about, preach about, talk about, is really who he says he is, or that he will one day do exactly what he has promised. The danger of falling, falling headfirst into this mindset, of course, is that though on the outside you may look very Christian, you have all the marks that would identify you, on the inside you are a practical atheist. And it shows itself, doesn't it? We begin to grumble and complain. We begin to worry and whine. And essentially, we live as if God is dead. And everything is just spiraling downward. 
Faith is gone, and all that remains is unbelief. What I love so much about the storyline of Scripture is that it lifts, it lifts our faithless, drooping heads up so that we stop looking at ourselves and at our little, tiny world that we live in. And instead, it lifts our heads up to see the power of God across all of history. God accomplishing his redemption from beginning to the end. It's as if the Bible puts you in a hot air balloon. And if you've been in one, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's as if Scripture puts you in a hot air balloon and you rise and you rise higher and higher and higher. It takes us way up into the air, into the clouds, in order to give us an entirely different perspective than the one that we have standing right here. Suddenly, we see things that we never saw before. There's more than just us. There's a whole world out there. It gives us an entirely different perspective. I would argue Scripture gives us God's perspective, which is the perspective that we need. It gives us a God's eye viewpoint from above so that we can see His providence at work from the beginning to the end of history and the seemingly ordinary events of life. And in doing so, we begin to realize that the God that we worship is so big. And he is, he is so sovereign. He has a plan. And this plan is unfolding. And though at times it seems as if it's just impossible that his plan of salvation would continue through people like us and churches like this, our supernatural God does the very thing we thought impossible. And people, if you don't realize that already, let me encourage you as brothers and sisters in Christ to go home and to read your Bibles more. This morning as we turn to Scripture once again and look at Genesis specifically Genesis 18, we're going to return to the, the story of Abraham and Sarah that we've been following. We're going to discover that God's plan and God's promises once again are moving forward. And he demands our faith in him. Why? Well, as we're going to see, he is the God who can do all things. And he is the God whose promises will not return void. So look at Genesis 18 with me and your outline in front of you as we work through this passage. First of all, in verses 1 through 8, we see that Abraham, as God appears to him, Abraham prepares a meal for the Lord. Throughout Scripture, the Lord appears to man 
in a multitude of diverse ways. We're not always told the specifics of what these encounters were like, though I would have loved to have been there and seen it for myself. We're not always told exactly what it felt like or exactly what it looked like, though sometimes we are. And though sometimes we are, we are giving some clues, the full experience of it is just briefly told to us in Scripture. For example, the Lord would speak to Moses as he encountered a burning bush. And with Israel being liberated from Egypt, the Lord's presence would be manifested through pillar of fire and a cloud. Or if we return to Genesis 15 and the covenant God cut with Abraham, as we learned, God walked between those carcasses symbolized in this smoking fire pot and burning torch. Now, in this passage, what we see is that God is going to appear once again. The Bible does teach us that God is, and this is important, this is Theology Basics 101, so make sure you have this down. The Bible does teach us that God is not a human being, but an eternal spirit, and therefore he has no body. He is not the creature, is he? He's the creator. And one who is not bound or limited by space or time or material form. However, at times, God may choose to manifest himself or to be present visibly through some type of physical or even human form. This is a mystery, isn't it? This is a mystery that is very hard to explain. But in theological terms, this is called a theophany. A theophany. What's that? Well, that's exactly what happens in Genesis 18. God visibly manifests himself as three men appear to Abraham. We're not told what they looked like what their presence was like when they arrived suddenly in front of Abraham. But we do notice from the language in this text, notice the, how the plural and the singular are used back and forth with one another. One, at one point, Abraham is referring to three men. In the, in, in the next point, he's referring to just the Lord. As Abraham is sitting there at the door of his tent by the oaks of Mamre in the heat of the day, suddenly three men are standing right in front of him. Certainly, he must have been shocked and surprised, startled and, and perhaps even terrified. We're not told exactly, but perhaps terrified, especially once he realizes that the Lord himself is present. The Lord has arrived and his intention is now to bless Abraham. I found it interesting in studying for this message this morning. This is just a footnote. 
how so many times commentators, and perhaps they're right, I'm not sure, but so many times they would say, Abraham had no clue that this was the Lord. And as I reread the passage over and over, I thought, I don't know if he knew exactly what all of this entailed, but it sure seems to me by his actions that he understood that God was present. So what did he do in response? Abraham quickly showed hospitality to these three strange, alien men who are standing right in front of him. He ran from his tent to meet them. Notice notice the, the eagerness and the anticipation, knowing that perhaps this is the Lord who's appearing to him, who's going to speak to him once again. And so he bows himself down to the earth and says, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, verse 3, do not pass by your servant. In other words, Abraham is telling telling them, stop. Just wait here. Don't, Don't pass by me. There may be a hint here of Abraham trying to hold on this blessing that's to come. Abraham insists that water be brought so that they can clean their feet and rest in the shade under the trees. He also insists that food be brought to feed these pilgrims passing through. Now at first it seems that Abraham, he says he's he's just going to bring a morsel of bread, but what ends up happening is Abraham rushes back and tell Sarah and others, and they prepare an entire meal for these men. As he rushes and hurries, Abraham goes to Sarah, telling her to quickly prepare some cakes. And meanwhile, Abraham runs as fast as he can to his herd, and he picks a a tender and good calf, perhaps the best, asking one of his servants to quickly prepare this, to kill it, and prepare the meat. And when all of this is ready, Abraham presents it before these three men. A meal so that they will be fed and refreshed. Certainly this is the least he can do given what verse 5 says, that the Lord himself is here at this ready to speak with Abraham. You might ask yourself, what's the meaning of all of this? I think it's hard to say exactly what the bigger picture of all of this might be. Abraham rushing back and forth and preparing this meal and setting it before him. Surely it's a fitting response on Abraham's part to the Lord, demonstrating that Abraham is God's servant. It could also be the case that this meal was meant to to really set the context for the personal relationship that God had with Abraham. Abraham is, after all, the one that God has chosen to enter into a covenant with. We've seen that. And this meal only serves to solidify that close relationship, doesn't it? Covenants in the ancient world at this time 
would oftentimes be accompanied by meals. Since eating together was definitely a sign that some type of peaceful agreement or treaty had been met and agreed to. Later covenants in the Bible, if you think ahead to the book of Exodus or Leviticus, later covenants in the Bible would follow this pattern. Next time you're reading through Exodus or Leviticus, keep an eye out and notice how often a meal is sometimes associated with a contract or a covenant or a pact. So it may very well be the case that this meal in Genesis 18 could be a meal of peace. A meal of peace, perhaps even a holy meal. One prepared for the Lord as he announces that his promise of an heir is about to be fulfilled. This, people, do you realize this is a climactic event? Abraham and Sarah have been waiting and waiting, sometimes disobediently so. And now the time has arrived, whether they realize it or not, whether they believe it or not. Certainly the Lord has united with Abraham in fellowship in this meal as he is about to confirm the fulfillment of his covenant promise. Which brings us to our second point. In verses 9 through 10, we see that the Lord promises once again a son to Sarah. As we have joined Abraham in his pilgrimage this far, we have watched as God has entered into a covenant with him. And we've seen what that entailed. This covenant not only involved the promise of land, remember, but the promise of a seed, an offspring, a son even, through whom God said he will bless the nations. And from time to time, we won't do this now, but from time to time, we've even looked at the New Testament and seen, kind of skipped ahead to see how this story is going to end. It's through this son that God promises to make Abraham's name great and bless him with a multitude of descendants. And this is about to blossom. But the wait has been long, hasn't it? It's been very long. And Abraham and Sarah's faith at times has been very tested. In verses 9 through 10, the Lord promises to Abraham that the time for a son is now here. And in one year, he says, Sarah will have a son. What an announcement. What an announcement. What a promise this was. The entire story of Abraham, it's been building and building up to this point. God called Abraham out of his home country to go to a foreign land that he would give to him and to his offspring after him. God promised that he would make Abraham's offspring, his descendants, as numerous as the stars in the sky. And yet he still doesn't have one. God promised to bless the nations through this one man. But notice, it wouldn't be through Abraham. It wouldn't be through Abraham's own 
ingenuity. It wouldn't be through Abraham's or Sarah's own creativity. Apart from God, that is through Hagar and Ishmael. No. The Lord made it clear to both of them, to both Abraham and Sarah, that they were to wait upon the Lord and they were to wait specifically upon His timing as He would provide an heir from Sarah's own womb. As impossible as that seemed. And surely it seemed impossible. I mean, if you or I were standing there in the background watching Abraham and Sarah, the first thing we would have noticed is just how old they were. Sarah and Abraham were very old. Very old. And if you would have said, turned around and said, by the way, Sarah's about to have a child, you would have been laughed out of the room. What? I mean, look at her. She is way past the age of bearing children. Her body is not physically able to do that. It's not physically possible. It's the impossibility of pregnancy. And it's just remarkable to me how many times, even leading up to Christ, how many times God works through a single woman, barren womb, to bring about, to continue his promised lineage. It's through Sarah that this impossible pregnancy is going to happen. But it's that word impossible that is really going to define in this chapter Sarah's response, which brings us to point number three. In verses 10 through 12, we see that Sarah, when she hears the news, laughs in unbelief. She laughs. In unbelief. So far in the story of Abraham and Sarah, we have noticed that Sarah, like her husband, Abraham, she struggles in her faith, doesn't she? We see it. Abraham's affair with Hagar was Sarah's idea, remember? It was her scheme. She grew impatient waiting upon the Lord and decided. I will take matters into my own hands. I will make this offspring come. I'm going to use my own maidservant to do it. Her impatience stemmed from her struggle to believe the Lord. She knew her own body more than anyone else. She knew just how old her body felt. Unable to have children, no doubt. As a matter of fact, having children, it was simply impossible for her at this point. There's no question about that. So you can imagine her response when she, she listens in on the conversation between these three men and Abraham. Out of sight, out of mind. She's listening. In verse 9, one of the men asks, Where is Sarah, your wife? When Abraham says, 
Sarah's in the tents. The Lord responds by promising Abraham that this time, next year, notice how specific the promise is getting. This time, next year, Sarah will have a son. It's as simple as that. Thinking, no one knows she's there. <laughs> Listening in, Sarah laughs in her heart. After I am worn out, and my Lord, Abraham, is old, it's not just her, it's him too. Shall I have pleasure? What? Sarah, she can't believe this news. In fact, she will not believe this news. She won't believe it. This cannot be possible. And so she laughs. Whether she realized it or not, Sarah was laughing at the Lord's promise. Unable to believe that such a thing just could be true. Sarah was, in essence, isn't this what all sin comes down to? Sarah was committing a sin, the sin of unbelief, a sin that's really at the root of every sin. Which brings us to number four. God requires faith, for nothing is too hard for the Lord. Look at verses 13 and 15. Sarah's laughter is met with the Lord's rebuke. She thinks no one has heard my laugh. But she doesn't realize that this is the Lord who is here. And what do we know about the Lord? He is a God who knows all things. Reminds me of Jesus in the Gospels, of how taken back some of the Jewish religious leaders are when suddenly they realize he knows our thoughts. He knows the wicked, wicked schemes that we're planning about him. We never even said anything. This is the Lord who is present. Though no one heard the thoughts in our own hearts, the Lord knew them. And then he exposed them. He calls her out right in front of Abraham. Why did your wife, Abraham, laugh? And why did she say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? What is so remarkable is that even after Sarah was exposed, what does she do? She lied, saying, I didn't laugh. <laughs> Her lie is met much like a, like a child. Her lie is met by the rebuke of the Lord. No, Sarah, you did laugh. Sarah, in other words, out of fear, this visitor tries to, much like Adam and Eve in the garden, she tries to cover up, 
cover up her unbelief with a lie, acting like she's a person of faith when in fact she is full of doubt and disbelief. But Sarah did not understand who she was talking to. This was the Lord in front of her. He knew her most intimate, personal, secret thoughts. Before the Lord, and listen to me, before the Lord, all of your thoughts are known. You think you can hide them from everybody else, which you can, but not the Lord. He knows the deepest thoughts that you have. You are naked before him. You see, before the Lord, all of our thoughts, they're exposed before him. Nothing can be hid from his sight. He is the God who knows all things. Sarah learned that day as she embarrassingly hid in the door of that tent, not only that the Lord knows all things, but the Lord can do all things. This omniscient God who ate a meal in her tent was also omnipotent. For the Lord corrects Sarah's disbelief, and he does so with a question. Sarah, is, is anything too hard for the Lord? Anything? The answer is a resounding no. No. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. You think your womb is dead and lifeless, Sarah? Think again. I, the Lord who created the entire universe out of, out of nothing, will now create one life in your dead womb. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Have you forgotten, Sarah, that you are in a covenant with the living God who put the stars in the sky, fashioned the mountains that you can't even begin to climb over, and then spun the planets into orbit? Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Have you forgotten, Sarah, that though I sit in your little tent... I am the God who merely spoke the word and floodwaters covered the entire earth, swallowing every wicked human being. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Have you forgotten, Sarah, that though I sit here eating this meal, I am the God who saw the sin at Babel. And in an instant, at the command... I confused every one of them so that they had no idea how to communicate with each other, scattering them throughout the earth. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. 
really think then that I cannot breathe life into your old bones? Oh, Sarah, do you think that I will not fulfill my promise to give you a son through whom I, the Lord God Almighty, will bring salvation to the nations? Nothing is too hard for the Lord. One year later, after God had appeared to Abraham, promising a son through whom the nations would be blessed, one year after Sarah had heard this news and then just laughed in unbelief, she sat there with a baby in her hands. And I don't know But I think it is very likely that she laughed again. (laughs) Except this time, it it was a laugh of unbelief, yes. But this time, unbelief that she even doubted God for a second. A second. It was a very different laugh of unbelief, wasn't it? I can imagine how Sarah must have rocked that boy to sleep, thinking to herself, I doubted. I doubted. I didn't believe. But I am holding in my hands living proof that the covenant God made with my husband is one that God himself will fulfill. It's a covenant he has not forgotten. And though it seemed as if God's covenant promises had failed, all along he was at work, even in what appeared to me to be impossible circumstances, to bring these covenant promises to fulfillment. At least I hope that's what she realized. Fellowship Baptist Church, we worship a God. It's so cliche to say this. It's so cliche to say this that I want you to understand in light of Genesis 18 what this means. Because we're just so used to hearing it. Whether you actually believe this or not. Because if you don't believe it, you should just walk away from Christianity. That's how important this is. Do you really believe that we worship a God who can do all things? Have you forgotten that to have you forgotten this most fundamental truth? Our God created the universe. Our God cut a covenant with Abraham. Our God brought about that covenant. And he he, he brought it into effect through the possible situation of a dead body like Sarah's. And the seed, the offspring of Sarah's womb resulted not only in the birth of Isaac, but eventually 
and the birth of Christ, the true son of Abraham, the one who has brought blessing to the nations through his life, death, and resurrection. And now, here we are. Here we are. Children of Abraham, children of Christ. Here we are as a church, as his church, as his bride, commanded to love one another as Christ has loved us, commanded to trust in our sovereign God as we wait his return and the future glory in store for us as your body and mine deteriorates, grows old. We are to wait for that future banqueting table. People, it's a table that is going to make Abraham's meal with these three visitors seem like a mere appetizer. Fellowship Baptist Church, do you really believe, do you really understand who you worship here every Sunday? Or do you just come to church, or go to youth group, or life group, thinking this is just one big game we're playing? Do you walk around here depressed, discouraged, grumbling words of unbelief? Do you walk around these buildings bitter, angry, full of complaints, laughing in your heart in total unbelief? Oh, this church is just the same old thing with the same old people, the same old songs, the same old message, and the same old God. You wouldn't say it to anyone, would you? But is that what's going on in our hearts? Do you not realize that when you sit down on the couch during youth group, open the children's Bible during the nursery time, open your mouth to sing songs of worship, or turn in your Bible during a sermon, that you are coming before God Almighty. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, who has not only entered into a new covenant with you by the blood of his own Son, but who has promised, Jesus himself promised, that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. Do you not know, I pray you know this, do you not know that the God who promised to Abraham salvation for the nations is even at work now, not only across the earth, they're missionaries, but he's at work here in this church among us ordinary people going about our ordinary lives, bringing that promise to fulfillment through the proclamation of the gospel. 
of his son, Jesus Christ. I pray you know that this morning. I pray with all of my heart that together we believe it and we live like it. Don't forget, Fellowship Baptist Church, that there is not anything that is too hard for the Lord. Before we conclude with a word of prayer, I want to read to you from Psalm 33. I want you to stand with me as we read this together. Listen to the words here of the psalmist. Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord, the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Why? 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 For the Lord, for the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Fellowship Baptist Church, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him. Because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, let your steadfast love be upon us, even as we hope in you. Amen. Let's pray.
Lord, we can't say it better than the psalmist. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. That's in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and through his blood of the new covenant that we pray. Amen.